Revelation 1 is where we'll start this morning. Um, I've benefited from, in recent weeks, a couple of different opportunities to hear people talk about the book of Revelation um, in different ways. One was more of an overview of just some like themes of Revelation, uh, the book, and then another one was kind of a super fast run through of book chapter by chapter. Um, and it got me thinking about a lot of things, plus some conversations with various friends and things have got me thinking about this book some in the recent weeks. And I thought it might be good to spend some time at least in the first couple chapters here, which I feel like is pretty typical. People, if they, if they talk about Revelation, they talk about the first couple chapters, right? Um, but the reason I wanted to talk about these chapters um, are because I feel like maybe the application for us is really clear. There's application all throughout the book of Revelation. I'm not saying that it doesn't have application. But for us here, I feel like there's some pretty immediate lessons to be learned um, very quickly. And so I want us to look at Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to move from Revelation 1 all the way to almost the end of chapter 2. And I want us to see some things uh, that are observed in these chapters. I intend to make this part one of potential of a two-part thing. Depending on how far I get today, it may end up being a three-part thing. Um, and I, I titled this, What the Spirit Says to the Churches, um, because I want to look at what God wanted these seven churches to know. And the reason I want to look at that is because I think we can kind of find ourselves in most of these churches. Um, sometimes we might find ourselves... And the first church. Sometimes we might find our church situation relating more to the third church. We can always kind of see ourselves in one or more of these churches. Um, so I wanted to observe kind of what God says to these churches. Because unlike other letters that God writes to the churches through, say, Paul or Peter, this has a whole different kind of perspective to it. The perspective that is being written from in Revelation is one of eternity. Um, Not that other letters don't contain that. But it's looked at through the eyes of, and I appreciate James reading this earlier, it's looked at through the eyes of this Jesus who we don't often think about. Uh, When we think about Jesus, and I think these are appropriate images, but we tend to think of uh, Jesus with the little children, compassionate and quiet, right? The Jesus that's on the cross, that's suffering, and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And those are appropriate images of Jesus because they're biblical images of Jesus, right? But I think Revelation chapter 1, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, shows us the Jesus of now. Shows us what Jesus is like now. Now that he's not a man anymore in the flesh. That he's back in heaven. And he's observing these churches. So beginning in... Uh, Chapter 1, I want to make a couple observations first of all. Uh, Someone pointed this out to me, and I felt like this is helpful, especially since we're going to be running through these letters fairly quickly. Um, Just some observations about the letters in general. They do have a pattern, and generally speaking, the pattern is this. To the angel of the church at so-and-so, right? He identifies. Statement about self. You're going to see immediately following that, there's going to be a short description about Jesus, before he launches into the letter. Um, And we're going to see that he draws that description actually from what we read when James was reading. Um, Then he commends them about something, then condemns them on something, 
And then he who has an ear, let him hear statement. And then there is a challenge to he who overcomes. Now, not every church, because of what's going on in the churches, follows this pattern exactly. A couple of these things might be reversed or omitted depending on their problems or challenges. But that's the general structure of all the letters. Um, So that might be helpful to think about that as well. And there's also a pattern even in the churches themselves. Churches 1 and 7 are in danger of totally losing their identity. Jesus is threatening to, as he says, remove their lampstand, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Churches 2 and 6, there's really nothing bad said about those churches. Um, And then 3 through 5, you have some good, some bad. So do you notice the pattern there? You have kind of 1 and 7, 2 and 6, and then the middle's kind of some good, some bad. Um, So as we run through these quickly, maybe that'll help you kind of think about these letters just broadly as we approach the specifics. Um, One thing that I do want to say, and then we're going to emphasize this again as we're going through these letters, um, and again, this was pointed out to me, which seems like an obvious statement, but it is helpful to keep in mind, is that each of these letters deals with specific things or issues that each of the churches has, right? Duh. But Jesus knows about it. You know, sometimes we think about, like, we have problems that we know about, like, my church has this problem, right? Or my church does this well. And that's good. We can make those observations. But ultimately, these letters are written from the perspective of things that Jesus knows about, right? So these aren't even necessarily things that the churches would have realized about themselves, whether good or bad. And so I think we need to look at this as saying this is Jesus' authority to speak on these things, and it's absolute. Okay, so let's dive into Revelation chapter 1. To whom is this book written? Let's read verses 9 through 11 of Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So this gives us a little bit of background of the book, right? John is on some island. We typically think that maybe he's suffering on Patmos as an exile for, for his faith, um, But he's on this island, and it says he's on the Lord's Day. Typically, we think about that as being Sunday. Um, It seems like that's the most probable understanding of what he meant by that. Um, So that's a little bit about John, right? But what's happening to John? He's not with brethren on the Lord's Day. He's in the Spirit, right? And then what occurs to him, it says that behind him a loud voice like a trumpet you can imagine john's just kind of chilling out on the lord's day thinking about spiritual things all of a sudden he hears like this trumpet like voice behind him and he whips around like what in the world but what is said is really important right write what you see right so he's going to be describing visions or things that are seen Um, write what you see in a book and send it where to the seven churches, and we might say of Asia. Um, if you're like me, when I was a kid, I used to think these were like in China. Um, but this is really like Turkey, right? And so write and send it to these churches in Turkey. 
So that gives us some clues about the book. John's writing. It's a direct message from God. We're going to see that it kind of goes from God. We might think about it this way. It goes from God to Jesus to uh, this angel to John to the churches. You kind of have this sequence of delivery here. So that's a little bit about the background of the whole book of Revelation is to the seven churches. So let's, let's look at this as well. Why is he writing? Let's pick up in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. So he hears this command. He whips around to see who's talking to him. And it says, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Are you guys visualizing this? Seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. A pretty crazy image is given to us. And who do you imagine this image is of? Well, it identifies him as the Son of Man. Well, who do we think that is, right? Obviously, this is a picture of Jesus. And as uh, James read for us, the description of him is kind of ridiculous, right? It's this super visual description, right? He has a gold sash on, a long white robe. His hair is white. His eyes are like a flame of fire, whatever that means. Um... Out of his mouth is coming this sword that has two edges, right? In his right hand, he's holding seven stars. So I think that tells us a couple things. It tells us the power of this person, this Jesus. Also, maybe even the size, right? Like, how big do you have to be to hold seven stars in your right hand? Um, Also, we see his feet are like like molten, kind of refined bronze. Um, You imagine, like, whatever he's stepping on is just, like, burning up and melting away, right? This is the Jesus that is speaking to John, right to these churches. Let's continue in verse 17. And when I saw him, what does he do? I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that, are, uh, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, remember he was standing among those, right? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we have this picture of, of John being spoken to. And you remember, he whips around like, who is saying this to me? And this is what he sees. He sees seven lampstands. I always envision like seven menorahs, right? Like the, the, the lampstands with all the candles on it. I, that's just what I envision for some reason. So I envision these seven lampstands and there's someone walking among it. And that's how he looks. The burning eyes, the white robes, the stars in his hand. And he says, hey, these lampstands are the churches that I'm telling you to write to. The representative of them. The stars that are in my hands are representative of these angels, these messengers that are going to be with these churches, that are to these churches, right? Jesus has control over them. 
And so that really sets us up for these letters that John is writing from Jesus to these two churches. Now, where is Jesus when he's writing these letters? He's among the churches. I think that's important. He, I think the picture is, one, he knows intimately and absolutely what is happening among the lampstands, right? Because he's walking among them. Two, because he's walking among them and does know that, he has all authority to place or remove a lampstand, right? So... We begin in chapter 2. The first church that we see written to is a church that we actually know probably the most about, uh, Ephesus. The end of Acts chapter 18, we see Ephesus kind of come into the picture for the first time as far as a church existing there. Um, 18? Yeah, 18. Acts chapter 19 is mostly about kind of what's happening in Ephesus. Um, And so we think good things about this church, right? Like we have a good impression of Ephesus. We know that they have a whole other letter written to them, Ephesians. Even 1 Timothy is regarded as having been written to Timothy, but also Ephesus. Um, So we know a lot about this church. We know that as far as churches, maybe they're one of the older churches, right? The more established churches. But look at what Jesus has to say to them. To the angel of the church, remember one of those stars in Jesus' right hand, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right. I think Jesus starts with this description of himself reminding them of who he is. And I want you guys to notice this. Every time he gives a description of himself before the letter, it relates to whatever they're going through in some way. So he chooses his description very intentionally here. So look at what he says. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you, and I'll remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. So what he's saying to Ephesus here, he describes himself, he says, remember, I'm the one with the seven stars in my right hand. I'm walking among the lampstands. And that ties into what he says here because uh, it gives him absolute knowledge of the situation. And he's able to, as he warns them of later, right? I walk among the lampstands. So when he warns them that I may remove your lampstand, that resonates, right? I'm here among the lampstands, and yours may be removed. So it relates to the message in that as well. And if you look at his description again, to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The emphasis, I think, is while he's holding and he's walking, it's on him who's there, right? What is the problem of this church? They're walking and they're doing... Right? 
but they've forgotten him who is among them, right? They've left the thing that they loved at first, right? Which you have to assume was Jesus. Jesus was their first love. And now they've kind of left him behind in the wake of just doing some stuff, right? So the challenge, and we'll, we'll set up this pattern here. Uh, let's look at this. What are they doing right? Let's kind of focus in on that first because there is some stuff that they're doing right. Uh, look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The first thing I think that I notice is that they don't tolerate evil people, right? Doesn't that sound like a good thing for a church to do, right? Like, we don't tolerate evil people. That's not to say we hate people, but we don't tolerate them remaining evil if they're going to be among us, right? I think that's the implication of this passage. That's a good thing right? The church needs to not tolerate evil among it, right? Jesus doesn't need to be walking among the lampstands and be like, this lampstand is evil, right? That was a good thing for them to not tolerate, right? Now, that's not a totally popular message because tolerance is kind of the thing today, right? But Jesus is saying, you did well not tolerating evil. What else does he say that they did well in they put to test those who call themselves apostles, right? That's a principle that God's had for a long time, right? Somebody says to be a, they're a prophet, if the things that they say do not come to pass, that's a sign that they're not really a prophet, right? If they lead you away from me, that's a sign that they're not really a prophet. So we see the church was exercising that kind of logic, right? If you say you're an apostle, let's test that. And they did, And that was a good thing, right? People would come, false prophets and apostles would come, and they would put them to the test, and it says that they found them as false, right? Jesus doesn't say, you made a mistake, he was actually true. But really, in verse 2, you found them to be false. What else did they do that was good? They have endured for my namesake, in verse 3. I don't know totally what Ephesus was having to endure. If it was much like the other churches, the things that they were enduring were not pleasant. They weren't, uh, it wasn't like, man, they're charging you double for parking because you're a Christian, right? It was more like they're taking your stuff because you're a Christian. They're putting you in prison because you're a Christian. They're killing you because you're a Christian. Man, if I knew of a church that was going through that, that despite all of that stuff going on, They were not allowing evil people, right? They were not just listening to whoever claimed to be an apostle. One apostle comes and says, I'm an apostle. Jesus says you don't have to endure this stuff. Just go go with the winds of the times. Wouldn't that be an appealing message? But they weren't just tolerating whoever was an apostle. And they weren't giving up. If I were to visit that church, just Josh, I'd be like, man, this church is great, right? Like, man, they're doing all the right stuff. They have a zeal for God. They're not giving up. They're standing firm even when the world is kind of going one direction. They're not tolerating that. Look what else they're doing well. They haven't grown weary, right? It's, this picture of standing firm is one, right? But there's also another picture that, like, I can stand firm, but I'm, like, really tired of it. And when I'm tired of it, the inevitability of me falling or giving up is going to kind of come, right? But he's saying you're standing firm and you're not even tired of doing that, right? It's not even like wearing you down. You're really getting at it. What a good church. 
they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, I tried to figure out what the Nicolaitans were all about, and I don't really know. I don't think anyone really has a clue. Some say it was like an authority thing, that they tried to be like the rulers, be like the kings and queens of the churches, and I don't know. Bottom line is there was some doctrine or some idea that some people were circulating that was counter to biblical ones, right? And they weren't willing to tolerate that, kind of like the, the false apostles, right? If, if Josh were writing to this church, I'd be like, man, you guys are the best. Hang in there. Good job, right? Jesus acknowledges the good things that they're doing, but because he's the one walking amongst the lampstands, he knows some things that maybe you and I wouldn't know. And he notices that they do have a really fundamental problem. Look with me in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. When we look at the church of Ephesus, biblically, they seem to be one of the older churches of the Bible, right? The fact they're still around, like when John's old writing this, means they were probably around for, I don't know, 50 years or something um, at this point. I mean, that's an old church, right? Like, we're like two years old here, and I feel like we're getting, like, gray hairs and stuff. But doesn't this seem like a problem, like an older church might tend to have, right? Like... We have kids that grow up in that church now because their parents were converted and then those kids come up and like, what happens? They do church things. They know church stuff. But it's just church stuff, right? Like they, they know the stances to take. They don't necessarily have the reason for taking them. Doesn't that kind of describe what Ephesus seems to be going through here a little bit? And I'm not saying that the burden rests totally on children, but we can see how those types of things happen. Like over time... We forget the reason or the emotion behind doing something, and we just do something, right? We get used to taking a stand, even when our fire for why we're taking the stand is gone. And that's what Ephesus was experiencing. Do you think that's something that they even totally realized? I kind of imagine not. Like, I imagine, like, we're doing all the right stuff. What's the problem, Right? But Jesus, because he walks among the lampstands, is able to make this observation and able to show them this problem. That you've left your first love, right? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And here's the solution. Remember, therefore, or you might even say God's challenge to them is, remember where you used to be, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the things you were doing at first, right? Verse 5. Remember where you fall and repent do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. On my scale of severity, this seems pretty bad to kind of lose your, your fire for why it is you're doing what you're doing. But the bottom line to me is like, man, but they're still doing that stuff, Right? But this is such a severe issue to Jesus. This is one of only two of the churches that he writes to and says, there's a threat of you just being lost altogether. Your lampstand is going to be gone. There's some other churches that we're going to look at that have some really big-looking issues, and Jesus doesn't say that. right? Unless you repent, your lampstand's gone. 
so this tells me that doing the right stuff without a love for Jesus is completely useless. I don't think that way. I think a lot of times doing the right stuff, <clears throat> while it'd be better to have a love for Jesus, doing the right stuff, at least I'm doing the right stuff, right? But Jesus doesn't look at it that way. You might as well just remove the lampstand if that's the way you're going to do it, right? For us, I, I, and with each one of these churches, I'm kind of thinking about us here at the end of this. Like, how does this relate to us? And I don't know if any one of us can say for sure. I think we probably all have kind of our different thoughts on this. But if Jesus were writing to us here, the, the in-town group here, would he be like, all right, guys, you guys don't tolerate evil. Like, you're not letting liars and adulterers and uh, swindlers and gossipers be among you. That's great. You're not uh, letting false teachers and false apostles kind of just come in and do their thing, right? Like, you're testing those people and you're finding them to be false. You're not letting, you know, the Nicolaitans of your day come in and do whatever they're going to do to the hierarchy of the church, right? Establish some sort of hierarchy. In fact, you're enduring, Right? Atlanta can be a tough place, but you're standing against the grain a little bit, and you're not even getting tired. Would Jesus say those things to us? I would hope so. Um, And I think in a lot of ways he would. But would Jesus also come in, kind of like Ephesus, and say, you're doing all that stuff right, but you've left your first love. And I think this is a question that we need to think about corporately. You know, like all of us need to be considering these questions. But we can't really know the answer because we're not Jesus. And so, in a way, we need to evaluate, like, as a group, are we showing signs of this? But really, you have to ask yourself, have I left my first love? And if we can all answer that question with a no, then Jesus is not going to be standing among our lampstand and say, you guys have left your first love. If all of us can answer, no, Jesus, I haven't. I still love Jesus, and I'm doing this for Jesus. Then Jesus isn't going to be able to write to us, right? And be able to say that. And so my encouragement for us is, yes, we need to be doing all these things. We need to be enduring. We need to not be getting tired. We need to be testing false teachers or prophets, apostles, whoever comes our way. We need to not be tolerating evil. But we also need to be asking ourselves, do we do these things because we love Jesus? Or are we doing them because we grew up in a house that did them? Or are we doing them because our friends do them? Are we doing them because I feel guilty if I don't do them? If so, Jesus would threaten this church with removing its lampstand. Look down at the next church here. Oh, actually, let me say this before we move on. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus concludes every single letter this way. He who has an ear, let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he says one more thing. And I think he's saying that to say, listen to this statement. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The challenge was, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If you don't, what's Jesus going to do? Remove the lampstand. If you do, I think this is the if you do. The implication is your lampstand won't be removed, but the specific is you're the one who conquers, right? If you come back to your first love and you do repent, 
you've conquered, right? And to the one who conquers, I will grant eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So instead of, you might say death, right? The lampstand being removed, you've conquered, and you now have the tree of life. And you'll notice that each one of these uh, kind of promises, uh, let me see this, each one of these promises at the end of these letters in Revelation 20 through 22, you see them being fulfilled. Um, what Jesus says here in verse 7, grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You might already be thinking about how at the end of the book of Revelation, he shows the river of life and the tree with the fruit. Jesus shows these promises coming to fruition. Um, so that's just an interesting note there. So let's move into Smyrna here. Smyrna is the next church that we are going to look at. And this is a little bit shorter. So let's read these verses here. Verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Um, Smyrna doesn't really have anything stated about them that seems wrong, right? Isn't that interesting? Jesus is able to, with all authority and all knowledge, and he's walking among these lampstands, even he doesn't offer any kind of discredit toward them, right? In fact, he says a lot about kind of what they're doing right. He says they're persevering trials from harmful, you know, I put quotes around this, brethren, right? These Jews are kind of coming in and probably looking like they're going to be helpful or interested in the gospel. And then it says, Jesus says they're really a synagogue of Satan, right? They're a congregation of Satan's people. And so you can only imagine the kind of hurt that would do to a group that thought that maybe they're a congregation of God's people, right? Uh, so they're, they're enduring that. It says that they're undergoing uh, sentencing, prison, and even the implication by the way God talks about this, some of them are being killed off, right? But you notice what God says about this. He doesn't say, and that's unfortunate because you've really forgotten your first love, right? He just says, hang in there. Some of you are going to go to prison in verse, uh, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation. I don't think this 10 days is literal. I imagine it's just like this representation of some period of time, right? But the idea is, because of what God promises, it's not permanent, right? It's not like the prison that they're going to be thrown in is going to be some eternal prison. In God's perspective, it's just like 10 days, right? You're going to have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God's challenge to them, I believe, is twofold. The obvious challenge, the one that we tend to think of, is maybe the be faithful unto death, Right? If I'm a church, if I'm a Christian in a church, I'm going to be faithful unto death, right? And as a church, 
we should be faithful to death. Whatever death may come, whenever death may come, we need to be faithful to that moment. Jesus seems to be implying death is going to be sooner for some than others. And probably not so pleasant, right? Not like the, you know, 90 years old in your deathbed with all your family around kind of death. The in prison alone and starving kind of death. But also look at the other challenge that he issues to them. It's not just be faithful unto death, but if you look earlier in that same verse, do not fear what you're about to suffer. <clears throat> I don't think about fear as much as I think about like death. You know, I think about, man, like death, I need to be ready for that. But God is really telling this church not to be scared about what's going to be coming in their direction. Now, he doesn't say don't be scared because it's all going to be rainbows and butterflies and unicorns, right? He says don't be scared what you're about to suffer. You're going to be thrown into prison. There's going to be tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Whoa, Jesus, what do you mean death? I didn't know death was going to be a part of this whole shindig, right? Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. God, in his description of himself, Jesus says the words of who? The first and the last. Remember chapter 1? We didn't read this, but he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then what else does he say? Who died and what? Came to life. Now, I told you, mentioned this earlier, these short little excerpts of descriptions of Jesus from chapter 1 are emphasizing what point he's trying to make in each one of these letters. Don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. Why? Because Jesus was dead and he came to life. And his promise to you is in verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by what? The second death. The first death is inconsequential to Jesus, right? He died and came back to life. The second death is the death that he makes a promise about. So what about us here? You know, this one was a little harder for me to relate to uh, in some personal ways. But are we persevering as this church? Are we persevering like God calls us to? You know, I don't don't think anyone's threatening to uh, throw us in prison or to hurt us in that way. Um, In fact, like, it's been really nice being in this hotel because everyone's been super nice to us. The lady that helps us with this room is like kind of overly nice it's kind of weird actually right so we don't face this maybe right now but maybe there'll come a time where something similar happens i don't know but would god or does god stand in our midst among the lampstands and have nothing poor to say about us and really the only thing that he says is hey don't be afraid just be faithful until the end because i've come back to life and i'm promising that the second death's not going to hurt you Are we like uh, Smyrna in that way? If we aren't willing to endure like Smyrna, I think this is a challenge for us. Sometimes we we encounter trials and we have a tough time enduring. If we're not willing to endure like Smyrna, look at what he says to them. Do you imagine they felt like low and dirty and poor going through trials? Like, I'm in prison People don't like me. This stuff's tough. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation. They're going through stuff. I know your poverty. People are taking your stuff. You don't have a lot of stuff. But what is the parenthetical that Jesus reminds them of? 
but you are rich. Now, I imagine this is for a couple things. One, our mind might go to the promise that God makes him. You're rich because the second death isn't going to hurt you, right? But also, Jesus says you're rich, and then he never says anything bad about them. I think that's part of the wealth that they had, was that they were really living out their faith. Jesus says, you know what, you're rich. Unlike Ephesus, who had a big problem, you guys are really rich. You have nothing to worry about. The death, death can come to you, and you only have promises of God. You have no judgment. Do we feel that way? That if we were to die, we would just know we're rich. We don't have any worries of judgment. The last church that we want to look at this morning is Pergamum. There's a lot to say about this church for the sake of time. We won't say as much as maybe we might otherwise. Pergamum, let's read these verses. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, this is verse 12, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna and will give them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so let's move through this. Uh, the description of one speaking to them. Jesus draws on this, this picture. Remember he had this sword, this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? Um, if I'm Pergamum and that's the description Jesus decides to start with, I'm thinking, yeah, right? Like, oh man, what's he about to say if he is going to describe himself as the one with the sword coming out of his mouth? And it relates, right? He ends up saying, if you don't do what I'm telling you, he's going to come to, to war with you, right? Um, and he says with the sword of his mouth, he's coming. Um, but he does uh, have some things that he wants to say that they're doing right. Look in verse 13, they're holding fast to Jesus' name and not denying him. We're kind of seeing that among the churches so far, right? Not even when some of them were killed, right? They're standing up, they're standing up, they're not denying Jesus. Richard's killed. Uh-oh. All right, let's keep standing up for Jesus. Richard got killed, that stinks for him, but he's got promises, right? So let's keep standing up for Jesus. That seems to be what this church is doing. And not even when Richard's killed do they give up, and not even do they give up when they live in, as God describes it, Satan's city. I don't know much about Pergamum, but I, that's got to be pretty bad if God's like, man, that's Satan's city. That's where the throne of Satan is sitting, right? I don't know about you guys. I sometimes feel like Atlanta's pretty bad, but I don't know if God would be like, yeah, Satan's throne's there, you know? I think we see sin for sure, but like Satan's throne's got to be in like New York or San Francisco or something, right? But these brethren still didn't give up. Like, they were probably in a worse situation than we're in in Atlanta, but they didn't give up. Jesus has that positive thing to say about them. But what are they doing wrong? This is what I want to spend just a minute on. Apparently, they're holding the teachings of Balaam. Now, Balaam is kind of a weird character to me. 
Um, he's that prophet guy that the king tries to hire to curse Israel as they're traveling kind of through the land. Um, what I think this means is, and I think it's kind of self-explanatory in the text, is in Pergamum, it says, you have some there. Now, this isn't the whole church, right? There's some in that church that hold to the teaching of Balaam. And what does he mean by that? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. The picture of what it is he means by that is very clear. How that relates back to Balaam is a little tough sometimes. You, if you go back and you tie in like Jude, 1 Peter, Numbers 22 through 31, talk about it. It looks like because he couldn't curse them with his mouth, he told the king to uh, let them have some of the women of the land. And that caused them to be cursed by God because they weren't supposed to do that. So he put a stumbling block in their way, even though he didn't directly curse them. So I think that's the portrait of what's happening here. They ended up taking on idols and sleeping with foreign women and stuff like that. Can you imagine a church that has some people in it that are like encouraging Christians to like put stumbling blocks in the way of other Christians? Like imagine if me and Chuck are like kind of part of this group, but we're going around and being like, James, you should uh, hook up with that lady in your building. Don't tell other people, but like you should do that right? Or like, or Stephen, right? Like, you should go and go eat dinner with those pagans down the road, right? Like, you should do that. That'd be fun. Be a good meal. Be fun times, right? Or, and we go through the list here. Imagine a church doing that. And he said, he doesn't say the whole church is doing that. The problem is there are some among them who are doing that, and apparently they're tolerating it. They're like letting that happen, right? We can't be a church that lets that kind of stuff happen. Now, that's not to say we control everyone. Not everyone's a robot. We can't make anyone do anything. But we don't have to be people who tolerate it, right? Just like he said to Ephesus, you don't tolerate evil people. I think, I wish I could say he said that about Pergamum. You don't tolerate evil people. But apparently they were allowing those to do that. You know, it's hard enough to stand up for what's right when everybody's on board in the church. You know, like, because you go out in the world and nobody's on board with you, it seems like. So it's hard enough when you have the encouragement of people here. Imagine you didn't even have that, right? The church isn't even standing up for that stuff. How are you going to fare in your own life? It's going to be a lot harder, right? And that's a sad picture of Pergamum. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, we have this mysterious group that apparently is messing up some churches, or at least attempting to. Again, the idea is they're not, uh, they're, they're tolerating evil. Right. So Jesus' solution or challenge to them is for them to repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And remember Jesus of chapter 1, not like playing with lambs and children Jesus, not like the on the cross forgive them Jesus, but the Jesus of chapter 1, he's going to come and have war against them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who does heed the repentance, who does do what Jesus is saying, stop tolerating these guys, right? Stop holding these teachings. He conquers and he's given hidden manna. Uh, manna, of course, in the Bible is always from God, and it's always something for your good, for life. And so he's giving them that. 
and he's going to give them a stone. Uh, I'm not sure what the idea of this. I imagine it's this concept of you're a part of God's building. You're a part of something permanent, and it's got your name on it. Um, and no one knows that name except for the one who receives it. So does in-town struggle like Pergamum does? Do, like, do we like kind of tolerate people who are doing that? Are there some among us who are like kind of talking to people and encouraging them to pursue things that are a problem? Are we encouraging each other to, to pursue sexual immorality? Are we encouraging each other to pursue false gods, so to speak? Are we encouraging each other to just be a stumbling block to one another in whatever way that is? If so, Jesus would write to us this, these words. Um, but for those of us who can overcome that, for those of us who don't have a problem with that, and we do repent when we do, Jesus promises that he'll give us life and he'll give us a place or give us a part of what he's doing. Um, and so that, that's what the Spirit says to these three churches. Jesus is among the lampstands. He's got his angels in his right hand and he's delivering these messages. I'm not sure at this point of these three who we most relate to. Hopefully, hopefully it's Smyrna, right? Like, we don't have anything bad to be said. We just have to keep our nose to the grindstone and keep at it, right? But if you know some stuff in your life that looks anything like what's going on in Ephesus or Pergamum, you need to, to do what Jesus said. You need to repent and you need to overcome. If you don't, then Jesus probably could write to us as a church and say, there are some among you who, and then insert the problem. And we don't want Jesus to be able to say that. So if there's anyone here this morning that needs to, to change some stuff in your life because the words of Jesus to the churches reflect something poorly in you, we'd encourage you to take care of that because certainly God holds us accountable as individuals but we don't want him to be able to look at this church as a corporate and be able to say, you need to work on this. We want him to say, just hang on, promises are coming. Right? So if there's something like that in your life, we'd encourage you to make that right today. Enlist people around you, people that are sitting next to you or whatever, to pray for you, to talk to them about your struggles if you need to do that. Um, this song that Robin's picked out is just kind of a time for us, if you have something like that, to talk to you and to make the group aware of it if that's something you seek.